Well, I've uh, lost uh, probably about three hours worth of uh, discussion and everything. Got into algorithms and a whole bunch of other stuff and everything, but uh, because I have an older version of an iPod on occasion, it uh, flakes out on me and I end up uh, having issues with it, so and that's exactly what happened. I transferred, went to go transfer over the recordings this morning, and uh, the... The I just everything came through and it was only it said four seconds worth of conversation. It's like oh okay lovely, and I go to listen to it and it, uh, there was nothing there. So in any case, um, one of the problems I'm having definitely is uh, when I go to plug this thing into the computer, um, if it's actually paused on the recording, it uh, seems to cause some problems. So I have to uh, have to clearly uh, make sure that I don't um, have something paused in the middle of it. And, um, I'm just, um, I am going to make it a habit, uh, of, I mean, it's so much work and so much fucking effort and everything to, to put a podcast up. Uh, I've gotten it down to a little bit of a system and everything, but, you know, for the most part, it's just, um, there is a little bit of detail going into it. And, uh, unfortunately, I'm limited on space as well, so I've got to actually, uh, create a new account and everything with Amazon, which is where I'm actually retaining the, uh, the information for the podcast. Um, so I'm using, uh, Amazon's cloud services, um, S3 in order to, uh, retain storage for the, uh, for the podcasts themselves and everything. So, so far I've actually used their free tier, um, system and everything, but, um, the free tier has a limitation of five gigs for storage storage space and everything, and it takes about, um, probably about 50 or 60 of these things that, uh, that you can actually, um, start chewing through. It's about 50, I would say, and eh, more like 60, um, maybe even up to 75, somewhere in there, but, uh, I don't know what the magic number is. That's where it, uh, chews through about five gigs worth of space, so I've got two free accounts that are actually, I've opened up, and I'm in the process of opening up a third one, and, you know, the credit card seems to be having problems, so I've got uh, four different credit cards that I can use, each with, you know, nominal amounts on it and everything, and, you know, this is a funny thing and, and really kind of retarded thing about free, is um, a lot of companies actually require you to insert a credit card, and uh, for me, it's just like, this is really, you know, kind of lame, you know, why is it... Uh, I mean, I understand the logic and reason from their perspective is they're interested in, in uh, creating a revenue stream and everything, and, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, putting that credit card in there is their way of making it quote-unquote easy for you, um, or easy for them to continue your services as a paying customer and everything. Um for me, it's a little bit of a cop-out, and the way I look at it is if you're going to offer something for free, make it obligation-free. Free, generally speaking, doesn't mean it. Uh, free, in a general sense, does not come with obligations. So, by definition, so they're using, they're, they're abusing the word free, in my opinion. So, anyways, with all that said, I started getting into algorithms yesterday, and um, all the conversation was based on one um, observation that I had, and that observation was video games, particularly racing video games, have this uh, tendency to try to balance things out. So, if you're too far ahead in a racing game, in a general sense, those, um, you, you you actually have a tendency, there's program tendency, to make it so where you are a little bit slower, um, and it tends to actually algorithmically increase the speed of things that are actually in, in, the, uh, in last place. And I noticed this uh, most of all with Mario Kart. 
It was the first observational instance that I ended up discovering this in, and I, I started noticing it once I did. Um, I noticed it within a lot of different video games and everything. And, um, I mean, it's just, it, it's, I, I have no doubt the purpose it serves is, you know, to basically make the game seem a little bit more um, even, evenly matched and everything. But um, in a general sense, it's, it also makes it so where, you know, the whole concept of the bell curve, where you don't get any real competition that way. You know, you get things that are, you know, far in, in X, uh, you know, that it, it levels things out and everything so much so that it, um, I don't know, sometimes it makes the game... Um, sometimes it makes the game fun. Mario Kart's one of those games that's just fucking fun. You know, but uh, the problem is, with a game like Mario Kart, at the high end, um, particularly when you know that you're doing well and everything, all of a sudden everything else just happens to be just as good as you. And it's just, um, it, it gets to the point where it's really kind of irritating. And, and ultimately, it's actually what makes the game become unplayable and, and unfun. You know, so for me, it's just like uh, if you're developing an AI system and everything, and um, the whole idea of uh, you are the law of averages, and uh, everything else, you know, will actually gravitate um, around your skill level and everything, and that kind of becomes, you know, a little bit boring at times, you know, um... I mean, you know, to get into a game and everything, like uh, like Cuphead is a great, for instance. Cuphead moves at a at a pace that's fucking amazing and everything. And um, while I certainly don't think and move at the speed that it requires and everything, and most people I know don't, um, I ended up coming up with an alternative method to play the game and everything, which can actually, you know, reduce it to my speed and everything. And uh, it's basically something called MHS... Um, Spyro's uh, speed uh, hacking system, and uh, what it does is it actually takes a game and uh, can slow it down or speed it up depending on um, what the game is. And it doesn't work on all games. And what happens is you attach uh, attach this this hacking system to a process, and you can make memory modifications. You can alter the speed for the thing, so you can actually speed it up or slow it down. Um, there's any number of different uh, utilities that are actually within it that. Uh, can make alterations to it to make the game playable. And uh, the way I look at it is it's just like from an AI system and everything, you know, if you're playing a game like uh, Cuphead where, you know, developers are just like, I want you to be at a specific skill level in order to play this game. Well, I like respecting the developer's wishes. I mean, literally, it's just like, I would ask for the game to come out unmodified. However, me, when I find something that I like, that I find cool and everything... While I do respect the developer's wishes, and I won't censor or audit the information and everything they put, they put out, what I will do is I'll make it playable to me, you know, from my perspective and everything. I'm not interested in thinking like the developer, you know, but what I am, in many cases, but what I am interested in is is enjoying things from my perspective, whether or not that's the art, um, whether or not that's um, you know the sound, whether or not that's the story content. Um, you know, I mean, from from my perspective, I don't mind battlefields and that kind of stuff and everything. But you know, to for the most part, it just comes down to, you know, sometimes I just I'm not interested in you know, and and I and I know that there's the argument out there that uh, 
part of the enjoyment of a game is enjoying it at the speed that it was developed at and everything. And we're not going to argue with that. You know, um, there's some, there's some, certainly some logic to that and everything. But uh, it in itself, saying that solitarily, you know, from that perspective, isn't 100% accurate, in my, my opinion. So, in any case, um, logic and algorithms, that's actually what the prior conversation was. Um, I'm going shopping right now, so I'll be back. Lovely. Huh. Well, I guess I forgot to turn it off. I'll condense it when I get back. So, anyways, what, 30 minutes? Go grocery shopping. That's not horrible. <sighs> Got to some good stuff, too. $107. It's not horrible. I mean, I'm making a lot of the food and everything, and it's also for the most part, supporting almost a uh, whole family for half a month. So, anyways, um, uh, yeah, like I was getting into the algorithm type stuff and everything, I I just noticed very, very, uh, variants of possibilities and everything within games, and uh, a lot of it just comes down to, from a programming perspective, I had picked up on for years, um, the logic uh, that actually went into the development of certain things. Now, from a, a face value perspective and everything, there's different levels of logic that actually get implemented within a system. And um, part of being exposed to an MBA program understands that a part of the logic that's actually guided by developers um, is also guided by the decisions of, of um, managers and directors and uh, people that have vested interests in it. And in addition to that, there's also various levels of, uh, of influences that are actually occurring at, at even higher levels than that. Now, what I'd learned over the uh, period of uh, my life and everything is ultimately that it all leads back to me, you know, so I'd been trying to pursue and find out what was actually causing influences whenever a um, company or an agency would or wouldn't uh, hire me and everything. And um, in, in many cases, I would also question the uh, supply chain when it came down to me receiving video games and how I receive, vi receive video games. And not only that, but also what went into the thinking processes, you know, for a developer and how a developer can actually develop something and, and, uh, and the different methods for development and everything. You have something like uh, OpenGL or DirectX, which is used for the vast majority of games nowadays and everything. But you have games like uh, Star Trek where there's a remarkably different um, paradigm that's actually in in process and it's not programmed um, the same way so if you played the game you'd uh, and if you actually paid attention to the details um, the details will fuck with your mind you know in in ways that uh, <laughs> that'll we'll put it this way you can uh, compare it to something like Gears of War or um, Oh, World of Warcraft and that kind of stuff, and all that kind of stuff is vector-based, so uh, polygons in particular. Now, 
they get into something like Star Trek, where it's it's got to, it's a little bit of an overlapping system. There are some things that are vector based in it, but uh, the the thing isn't entirely vector based. And some of the things that uh, you know, the way that the planets move um, and the texture and the terrain for the planets and everything, um, it, it's indicative of there being different methods actually employed within the same canvas. Well, in theory, this is not supposed to be possible, at least with DirectX or OpenGL and everything, because each of these is single isolated systems and everything. But I started thinking about it, and this is actually what led me into the algorithms, uh, per, you know, algorithm chain of mind and everything. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I suspect that uh, to some degree I'm an outlier. You know, I pursued things that uh, from an educational perspective and from a life's perspective as I'm looking at a map and trying to find a spot that, I, that somebody dropped me off in Nicaragua as I had a reference to that song and everything. I realize that a lot of the things that I've done that has led up to my life actually is, um, may seem like, you know, to most people to be a product of fiction. Most people won't be able to fathom or believe what I've been through and everything. Everything. Now, I mean, and had I actually been able to, you know, look look at my life now, and in hindsight, you know, let's say I was 20 years old, um, you know, when I was 50, you know, would I have been able to imagine this? No, fuck no. You know, would I have been able to imagine that I'd go hiking through um, Central America with only a backpack and no money? Um, there's no fucking way. You know, would I have been able to imagine that uh, I'd be jobless and I'd, I'd have reached uh, an echelon in my career and everything where I was actually seeing through the veneer of reality and I was actually finding out some things that I had never imagined existed? Well, the answer is no. And I, I think that's the thing is, I had lived, you know, in the 20s and 30s in what I considered an isolated blanket, you know, where, you know, you you have a tendency to believe that the world is, you know, is everything that you see, you know, and that's the extent of it. Everything you see and everything you experience, you know, is kind of like um, how everything is. This is your own truth. Well, there's nothing wrong with that frame of mind and that frame of reference, you know, but it, it gets to the point where it, it becomes um, a little bit, at least it did for me, having to prove others wrong in order to prove myself right uh, was something that got all old and tiresome and everything until I figured out a different way of being able to manage these things mentally. Algorithms, right? Now, there was a time I actually started paying attention to people and started asking myself the question, if I was to implement, now, implement an algorithm for people and behavior systems altogether, how would I actually do this? You know, that was actually a question I asked myself more than once, too. And, um... Each time it was something different, you know, like uh, in in my 20s and in late thir or early 30s and everything, it, w it might have been something simple like, you know, eat, shit, um, sleep, um, go to job, and uh, in a general sense, re watch, rinse, repeat. You know, that was basically it. Um, as I got older, though, I started seeing the complexity of human behavior and everything and started realizing that that complexity uh, made it so where the algorithm that I had perceived and everything definitely didn't fit. You know, so I kind of asked myself again, and it's just, you know, this interplay with my own mind and everything and uh, the whole idea of causal development, you know, as 
as I'm doing the analysis of the outside world and everything, I'm coming up with new um, new ways to actually define this behavior, psychologically, behaviorally, and everything. These are effectively algorithms, algorithms for the mind that, that actually kind of, to some degree, dictate uh, behavior. They dictate... Um, they dictate uh, systems, you know, and the way systems function and everything. They dictate uh, what's fed to us, you know, fed to me informationally and everything in a feedback loop. So, as I'm starting to go through all this process and everything, that's what got me into paying attention to video games. Now, why is it, um, you know, with a um, something like World of Warcraft is a great, for instance. Um, it's a It's a closed economic system. So the developer themselves is actually responsible for creating the economy. Um, they create the trade mechanisms in there. They create the uh, the ability to be able to sell and buy and sell things through other systems, um, you know, through bartering and that kind of stuff and everything. But for the mo most part, it's a very micromanaged economy and everything. And um, I started thinking about uh, the whole implementation of increasing the uh, supply of uh, of money within this world and everything. And and uh, I actually experimented with it on my own by creating a van vanilla WoW server and everything. And um, more or less, I ended up uh, bumping up the amount of coin that was actually dropped on per on each each animal, um, I ended up multiplying it by five times and everything. And, um, you know, for me, it was it was just the type of thing that as I experimented with it, I started thinking about the possibilities in the real world and everything. You know, um, it, and just comes down to the algorithms of the world and everything. So, in any case, that's actually what I, I spent uh, probably an hour and a half discussing. And as you look at video games and as you pay attention to if you're ever in a racing game and you see that uh, you're in the lead and you notice that incredibly, despite the fact that you're gunning it as fast as you can, um, it always seems like they can catch up. And similarly, you know, um, you may be in, in, uh, in last place and uh, inevitably it's almost like you could always catch up. You know, to the the person the person in the first place. It seems like if you're actually monitoring, you know, the overheads on on you know the overhead map and overhead views on these things, you can actually see that you are going faster than the person in the first place. But if you swap places, all of a sudden now they're going faster, and then you you know you cannot maintain the lead, and that's that's the interesting thing about the games is they're rigged in such a way to make it, in, in many cases for the racing games, impossible to maintain the lead. I find this interesting and kind of like a, a tell, a philosophical tell of the mindset of the programmers that actually develop the system and everything, these separate systems. You can see the philosophy, and that philosophy affects the way that, that you think about the world too and the expectations it in a literal sense programmed you isn't that weird you know that that the way that these games are played and everything it's just like it seems like it's fun at first but then all of a sudden you start realizing that it's actually affecting your ideals your mindset you know and the same thing holds true for in a corporate world too you know, in a corporate world, you're leveraging something to input data. Well, that's making you go through this habit of actually inputting data in a specific way, thinking in a specific way, aligned with the programmers that are actually programming, responsible for programming this. 
and th and they are influenced by the mindset of the people that actually um, created the company and everything. So slowly but surely, you get steered towards the mindset of those that are actually responsible for developing these things. It's kind of profound, if you ask me. You know, to understand that religion, in a literal sense, could actually be influenced, and basically, religious values can be shifted at a fundamental level by playing games. And, uh, and how it does this is by forcing you to adopt the mindset in order to play the game. Forcing you to adopt the mindset of the program itself that's actually having accepting your input. And it, it refuses input from any other way. Topic right now is automation. My first, um, I spent a lot of time in Phoenix. A lot, a lot of time. And, uh, if you think Area 51's big news and everything when it comes down to secret establishments and everything, some of the shit that Phoenix has is absolutely mind-blowing. I remember two facilities that I ended up going to. Um, one was uh, actually off of um, University in between McClintock and Rural, north side of the road and everything. The only way to access it is actually on a building uh, in a strip mall. Um, on the opposite side. Strip mall it always appears very busy, but uh, oddly enough, there's no one ever there. So, it's just one of the weird things. And it's actually a Bill, Ga Bill Gates-owned installation. So, he does a lot of research in the Phoenix area and everything. And, um, never met the dude, like I said before. But I did do a lot of work um, for, you know, for projects that he, he had spearheaded. And um, another one of the uh, facilities that they had, I only got to visit once, was uh, over off of... Oh, God, it's going to kill me. It's over at South Mountain. And it actually used to be an ICBM um, place. And uh, this is actually... They've got two of them in a... In a well, one in Phoenix, um, directly in Phoenix, and the other one in, uh, in uh, Tucson. Uh, the other one's on the outskirts of Tucson, but the one in Phoenix, it's off of, it's over by South Mountain, and uh, it's just it's one little. It uh, it's a it's supposed to be a it, the front is a concrete manufacturing plant and everything, and it's most certainly not. Um, you go in and uh, it's, there's multiple levels. I would go so far to say there's 20 levels of a uh, floor, you know, you just, you drive in through, it's a very secretive establishment, and most of the people that actually work there live there, um, and the big reason for that is they're not interested in traffic coming to and from the facility and everything, so it's pretty interesting, so most people actually get carted in through the same cars, and it's always a government-marked plate that comes in. That's the only indiscreet part about it. But the discreet part about it is it's always a, uh, it's always the same car and everything that takes you there. So it's really interesting, you know, from uh, from that perspective. Now, Area 51, it's a, it's a different beast altogether. And um, when it comes down to it, everything that you've heard about Area 51 is absolutely true. So yes, there's aliens there, and yes, they. They also have a habit of doing something I don't I don't like I don't personally uh, agree with and everything and that's um 
It's hard to explain what they do, but they leverage uh, something called, it's more or less tractor beam technology. And uh, that's the ability to be able to manipulate uh, energy and pull a vessel um, from space into the ground. And that's in the literal sense among the reasons that uh, you don't see a whole lot of spacefaring civilizations that actually come to the, uh, to the United States, let alone to this planet and everything. It's because of that, that station alone um, has been, has downed more um, alien vessel, UFO type vessels and everything, than I can actually count and everything. So what they do is they just basically, they plummet it into the desert out there. Um, they leverage technology while any spacefaring vessel, vessel comes here. And um, they end up uh, basically overriding the controls and they end up plummeting the thing into the ground and they salvage what they can. And uh, in most cases, what they're doing is they're actually taking, you know, the species that are there, um, any any kind of alien species and everything, and uh, some of the things they do, I'm sure they do alien dissection and everything, it's uh, among the reasons they do the same thing to us, um, but uh, in a lot of cases, they're actually human and humanoid. Um, what they do is they actually integrate it into our population. They leverage a form of mind control to erase their mind and memories of who they are and what they are, and they repopulate them right here and put them in uh, in planet earth and everything you know set them up and that's you know it's a really weird system and everything now i understand a little bit why they do what they do and uh, i'm not going not going to demonize it you know so there's very 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 valid reasons for some of the things that go on out there when it comes down to it um but in my opinion the downing um the literal crash landing and forced crash landing is it's kind of vicious um you know, you know you can put buoys and you know warnings to stay away from this planet and everything um and part of the problem with that is you know clearly there's going to be a lot of species that you know don't take the time to actually understand what the hell it is let alone uh, will still come in here so it's really when it comes down to it, you know, the people um, that are in charge out there and that are actually tasked with this activity and everything are trying their damnedest um, to maintain civilization as we know it, you know, and um, to pace the advancement of technology. And there's a reason for that, you know, and just... Um, <laughs> There's there's a lot of reasons for that. So that's why I'm saying it's just like, you know, I don't know if I agree with the methods that they're using and everything. Um, but I, I don't know if I if I have an alternative. You know? I mean, I understand what they do, you know. Um <laughs> I understand how many how many different spaceships have actually been crash landed intentionally into the desert out there, you know, and um I understand some of the you know, that's part of the reason that we do have some of the technology that we do. You know, we're just constantly retrieving it from downed spaceships and everything. You know, and that was kind of a lesson learned from Roswell. You know, Roswell was one of those unintentional ones that we just learned the lesson that, hey, we we gotta we gotta take control. You know, and um, it's just one of those things. So, and this leads me directly to something called automation. 
Now, there's a lot of civilizations out there, um, not just on this planet, but on other planets and everything, that leverage automation and to some degree an extensive amount of automation. And uh, that automation in itself, um, in a lot of cases, particularly for some of the more, more advanced societies off this planet and everything, um, has a tendency to usurp free will. Now, that's, that's kind of the precarious balance that this planet's in, and kind of, kind of what we do um, on a large-scale basis and everything to protect the development of the individual and everything, and, and to try to actually protect, um, protect the uniqueness and, and the individual's right, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, to live the life that they, that they want and that they dream of. Now, if it's their desire to have an accelerated society that, you know, that's living in the future, well, you know, we'll give them means and methods to achieve that, you know, um, but, you know, converting of this society, my society, into that, no, I'm not interested in that. I like the idea of having a somewhat sedate pl place to go back to and, you know, some predictability and everything to it, to a certain degree. Um, I'm at the cusp, though. Right now, I'm actually at the turning point, and basically, I've realized that I've lived, you know, in the slow lane for so long, and, and I need more. You know, plain and simply need more. I had been chasing, you know, the, the dream and everything, um, but uh, the topic is automation. And uh, coming back to the uh, what what made me think about the topic was uh, I was talking a few days ago, a few weeks ago, about the MOQ framework. And uh, what the MOQ framework did was it allowed the automated testing of code that had been developed by any of the programmers and everything by basically isolating layers and allowing us the capability to, whether or not we're working with a, a database or a user interface, we can actually work with them um, in a in a pristine or in a clean environment and allow us to be able to test in a in a black box situation um, now here's here's the thing about automation it's when you're testing with automation and everything, you're not getting all conditions. You're just getting a finite set of conditions and everything. And uh, in a lot of cases, while you do think um, you're testing within the bounds of, of what could potentially be entered, you're also, you know, in a general sense, you know, not, you're going to be thinking in such a way that you may not be able to consider all the other possibilities and everything. I mean, the fact of the matter is, no mind has a capability to look at the world from every perspective. In my opinion, no mind can do that. Now, if you're going to throw the God card at me or something like that, well, I mean, what I'm going to say is, um, I myself, you know, I've taken my own mind and I've isolated my single mind, you know, into this world and everything, and I know I have infinite other potential minds that are linked to me, you know, in a subconscious way. So while my subconscious has the innate capability to do precisely what I'm talking about, um, there's still always the potential for limitations. Always that potential. And um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, that, and that's kind of the reason I call myself an immortal, you know, an eternal being. It's just like, you know, part of being eternal is accepting that <laughs> more or less there's so much possibilities and everything 
you know, out there that uh, sometimes it just requires me to be innovative, you know, and, and genius, you know, when it comes down to the reinvention of me, you know, erasing of my mind, um, putting my memories in other people and everything until ultimately somehow that comes back to me. Um, all this stuff has already happened and everything. But um, automation um, is, you know, it's, it's basically it's the capability to take a set of tasks that one might normally do by hand and going through the process of automating the, these capabilities. Now, it started way back with Henry Ford and, uh, you know, with the creation of the Model T based on, off of a, a production line. You can also draw, draw lines directly back to um, the concept of uh, the cotton gin and uh, the ability to be able to convert cotton in its raw form to cotton that's actually usable for... Uh, for creating clothes and that kind of stuff. And you can even take it back further than that and you can actually think about it being, you know, the creation of railroads and, um, you know, the and the whole process is involved, you know, when it came down to the automating. And sure, it, it required humans to be able to tell other humans to do that, but eventually humans started inventing machines to basically start doing the same thing that the humans were. And as a result, humans can actually start doing different things and everything. That's the whole process of automation. Now, automation um, has a an evolutionary concept, in my opinion, and uh, the MOQ framework is an, is a key example of that. I had somebody out in the um, out in uh, in Studio City one time look at me square in the face as I showed him something on the computer, and she said, "But." That's not real. She exclaimed it, you know, older lady and everything. And, you know, I'm just like going, okay. Um, she goes, I can't touch it and I can't feel it. It's not real to me. And I said, okay, um, for me, it is real. You know, it's, I mean, you know, for me, it, it, but she had a valid point. You know, I had to look at it from her perspective and everything. No, I couldn't touch it. No, I couldn't feel it. You know, but I had spent my entire life doing work on the computer and everything, and a lot of cases, automating processes that were for the most part considered mundane by most standards and everything. And um, I started, you know, at this point, I think I was just more offended, you know, that somebody would have the audacity or gall, you know, to look at me square in the face and say, you know what? You know that thing that you spent your entire life doing? It's not real. You know? And it's just like, want to know what my answer to that is? Fuck you. You know? I mean, seriously. It was among the reasons that her and I ended up quitting talking. You know? So, and it's, you know, while, while it comes down to, sure, I can potentially respect a perspective that views the things that I've done as not real. You know, for me to have constant conversations with somebody that refers to some of the things that I myself enjoy, you know, playing with computer systems, doing research, checking out information, that kind of stuff, you know, it's almost the same, you know, to me, you know, as uh, saying that information isn't real. Ideas aren't real. Well, 
Yeah, so really what it came down to is there's two sides of the fence when it comes down to um, automation be beyond the material. And that, those automated processes and everything um, are fundamental. They're fundamental to the human body to function. You know, breathing. It's an automated process, right? You know, it was parts of my life and everything that I actually had to think about breathing. You know, where I would start hyperventilating, you know, once I started focusing on the whole process of breathing and everything. You know, and then all of a sudden, after a while, it just gets to the point where I quit focusing and quit thinking, you know, about um, breathing altogether. It's just something I naturally did and everything. Well, that's because it's a process. And that process went through a psychological, a mental automation. So that's actually, you know, something I've, I've learned over the years is the automation of certain processes within the body um, comes down to the discovery and, uh, and, and, you know, the education, you know, that, and to some degree, the feedback loop of understanding, you know, the processes in the body and everything. You know, so the reason I'm mentioning this is um, my mom and dad right now are, um, they're, they're fighting their health and everything. And we've got two dogs, um, Freckles and uh, Snowy. Now, Snowy, um, they've had on a medication and everything because of uh, this quote-unquote Crohn's disease, you know. Now, my mom keeps mentioning her age and everything. My mom's got this fixation with death altogether, you know, so not a day goes by um, or... You know, not a couple days goes by where she doesn't mention somebody else died. You know, and, and to me, it's it's to the point that I, I finally called her on it. I mean, I, I called her on it first, you know. Um, I mean, I noticed it when I was here the last time, but I called her on it for the first time about three weeks ago. And I'm just like, Mom, what's, your, what's with your fixation with death? Well, what do you mean? You know, and I'm just like, well, you know, you have a tendency to mention it all the time and everything. You know, I mean, it's, you know, she goes, no, I don't. And I said, well, I said, who died today? And she, you know, she told me, and I can't remember who it was or something like that. I said, note the fact that you advertised it to everybody. She could smile on her face and everything. And all of a sudden, you know, she, I said, now who died yesterday? And all of a sudden, she started seeing the trend. You know, and this is the funny thing. I say basically a lot. Um, I try to correct myself on the trend and everything. But not everybody has a sense of awareness about what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. So, in any case, um, we ended up having a discussion. And uh, she came to realize. It's just like, wow. You know, she does, you know, talk about it a lot. You know, it's, you know, her, her uh, um, my uncle died and everything uh, about... Oh, it was about seven months ago. My Uncle Paul and my Uncle Steve literally just passed away last Friday and everything. And we're dealing with um, a dog with Crohn's disease, is uh, what she says and everything. Now, I look on the, um, you know, on TV, and uh, I see nothing but, you know, ads, you know, basically about every kind of disease and, you know, all these different ailments and that kind of shit and everything. And I'm just like going, you know... The television, to some degree, you know, something that she watches on a regular basis, and she is absolutely being programmed, you know, um, to more or less accept, you know, that program, that uh, death and disease are a regular part of, a part of life and everything, and she's in this addictive feedback loop and everything, you know, and um, here she is, 
What if that's guiding her behavior? You know, what if um, what if everything that she does, you know, uh, in particular, talk about uh, the death and that kind of stuff. You know, whenever she knows notices somebody die and everything, um, and also the selection of foods that she might get, um, all the way to the places that she might go, the suggestions she might make to people. What if there's a slow influence, you know, about this stuff that that's like a, a domino, it's a cascade effect and everything, and it can't help but actually create and spread out from there. And um, what if, you know, in the case of Snowy, you know, and this Crohn's disease, what if it's an invented disease? And that invented disease is there, you know, because of her association, of our association, you know, that um, that death is supposed to happen for dogs around 16 to 17 years old. And as a direct result of that age, they're going to be in deteriorating conditions and everything. Well, oddly enough, you, you also might notice another correlation to medications and everything, and the same thing's true for, for older people. If old people ended up stopping taking all the medications and everything they took, just flat out stopped it altogether, would they be suffering with the death and disease that they're currently suffering with? And the reason I'm, I'm actually asking this question is, you know, is it, is it one of those things that they take these medications not understanding that they're slowly poisoning their body? You know, that they're slowly going through this process? And, and I know what you're going to say to me. Well, modern medicine has made all these strides and everything. Now, modern medicine hasn't done that. If you look at the chemical compounds of most drugs that are actually on the market right now, particularly anti-anxiety or anything that's actually going to help um, with the physical health and everything, um, blood pressure and that kind of stuff, there, there's one single chemical compound with slight deviances and everything that's actually providing that. And it, it's basically attacking a, a, an ailment of the mind. The mind is the problem, according if you feed into what the drugs are doing, and as a result, eliminate the mind. You know, and that's and that's what this is doing. Death is the process of the slow eliminate elimination of the mind. You know, and and basically society itself has been structured around this process. You know, it's a very, very automated process. It's an ex expectation that humans aren't going to live to, you know, past 80 to 100 years old. You know, there's an expectation that dogs, you know, are, are going to live between 17 and 20. You know, there's there's an expectation, a finite expectation, you know, of of timelines of uh, for basically every animal that exists on this planet and everything, and you know the and that expectation and everything, you know, um, creates in a literal sense creates reality. It asserts reality. You know, so here's the thing: what if we're being abusive to ourselves? And what if that abuse is causing some of the problems and everything, and some of these abuses and everything, you know, particularly when it comes down to medical abuses, um, through an automated process, is something that we can actually control and we could stop. 
Now, the reason I'm, I'm suggesting this is um, a few years ago, I ended up going to um, going on a kind of like a soul searching and everything, where I ended up driving through southwest uh, the southwest uh, part of the nation and everything. And you know, for me, it was one of those things that I was trying to understand. <laughs> With this concept of the mind and also God and also religion and culture and where does it all fucking come from and everything. And um, I made a stop through um, a psychic over in um, California. Um, first time I'd ever been to a palm reader and everything. And then I also ended up going to the Scientology uh, building. I, I did some obscure things that, that might uh, offend some people or tiff, make them uh, a little bit uh, tiffed and everything. And um, it, you can say that uh, China certainly influenced it a little bit. You know, some of the mentality and everything, particularly around holistic stuff. But uh, it was definitely a lot more and uh, when it came down to it, it was more me just trying to understand um, understand why Scientology would be deemed a cult, you know, and in a very negative fashion and everything, versus something like um, Christianity, you know, as a religion and everything, and other similar religions and everything are not, you know. Um, I'd been looking up online and everything, trying to find valid reasons for it, and there really isn't any. You know, it just comes down to perspective. One's demonized and the other one's not. And, and that's, that was my question, is why? What philosophically are, are they doing, you know, that's different, you know, that would not class or what would classify them as a cult? And, you know, what would actually... Um, what what's the difference between that versus you know a, re, a, a religion like Christianity? Well, I mean, there's there's one fundamental difference. You know, um, to some degree, Scientology requires that you pay in order to be able to uh, to to be enlightened. Where um, with Christianity, you know, and the other religions, you pay what you can afford if you want to, um, but for the most part, you're not required. So that actually would be my classification of what the difference between a religion is versus what the difference between that and a cult. The cult kind of expects you um, to, you know, to sacrifice everything you have in order to actually support the cult, where the religion makes no such expectation. You know, the religion's just simply there to support you um, from whatever perspective and everything that you're looking for. And if you can support the uh, the church in any way that you possibly can, whether or not it's through money or, or time or um, whatever means that you possibly have that the church can make use of, well, then at that point, that's actually what, what I learned was the key difference. So I did actually find an answer to my question ultimately, you know, about the differences between what's a cult versus what's a religion. But but um, the whole process, you know, of of automating things in the in the mind, and automating um, automating this thing called reality too. So the last last week, um, I've been playing a lot of. Um, Star Trek Online, and I've been playing it off and on since it came out, but I've really been kind of focused and seeing some really, really cool shit and everything lately, and uh, kind, of, kind of been throwing myself into the world. I like the idea of, of seeing my world transition here now 
to be a spacefaring society, to be a little bit more receptive and friendly to spacefaring civilizations that actually might come here, to find a different method and means in order to accommodate uh, interplanetary explorers and everything, especially who might come here and everything, um, and to do so without the necessity for for violence and but also do it in ways that I want, which is, you know, definitely a little bit more perverted than usual. I'm not talking about perverses and porno pornographic, I'm just talking about definitely a little bit more liberal rather than um, conservative uh, philosophy and everything. And I think a part of the motivation for this is my uncle just passed away. My, um, both of them did. And my mom and dad, you know, they're in their cycle, this automated cycle where I'll watch my father, he'll get up in the morning, he'll pass by, get a cup of coffee, he'll go back and do what he's doing every single day. Now, I see these processes, and I see this process for everybody um, around me. And I don't know if it's just a reflection of me. You know, um, or if this is just indeed their behavior and this automated process is, is just, you know, kind of what people do. You know, is this because they're happy or is it because they're bored, you know, or is it because they simply don't think or is it because, I mean, there's a list of oars a mile long, you know, but one thing I've just been thinking over and over again is I've answered my own question about what's next. Now, what's next for me is evolving this world to be a spacefaring society, to taking, you know, the next steps, making contact with um, external civilizations and everything, to basically making it so where the history has been, the Vulcans have, in a literal sense, been introduced to our world and everything, because they're so much like us, but they're species that didn't originate on our planet. And they've been in contact with us, you know, for, since the 1960s. <laughs> Now, as this planet slowly transitions to that, I like the idea of also giving my mom and dad and others who have gotten bored, you know, fundamentally, with this way of life and everything, and providing a, a future for them. And a future possibility. I'm not saying the future for them, I'm saying a, a choice for them. Now, I believe that we're all, to some degree, entitled to become creators, to become, more or less, elevate ourselves to a certain status and everything where we effectively become a god to others. Now, there's a certain sense of humility that has to, has to be retained with that. That's the way I look at it. I know, you know, that even though I may be regarded as that by many, and I will refer to myself as, as it, it doesn't mean that there's others that are certainly capable in different ways than I am and everything. 
Now I'm just the way I look at it is I'm just I'm just asserting my choice. My choice is to create a world, you know, that's modeled after Star Trek. And it's going to take some of the things I enjoy, eliminate some of the things I don't enjoy, you know, such as the torture and a little bit of the you know, necessity in order to carry a, a phaser or some kind of hand weapon around everywhere you go. I like the idea of creating a, a society that wants to get out to explore. I'm not talking about vacating Earth. I'm talking about having Earth and then having other planets out there, too. From the wrong perspective, yeah, humanity might be thought of as a disease. But from the right perspective, we're explorers. Simply exploring this universe and everything. Exploring the possibilities. A certain level of uh, automation that has to be taken into consideration for what we do, too. And part of it just basically means that, um, I don't know, I can certainly inspire and entice anybody, you know, and take a look at the slippery slope of what, uh, of all the possibilities out there. You know, and look at all the different types of uh, sentient species, and especially pay attention to the robotic species, you know, cybernetic species, and understand that these things, you know, in a lot of cases, have effectively eliminated their emotions, and they're completely guided by what they feel is rational behavior and everything. Well, when you've got a rational behavior that's dictating your moves, and you don't understand that basically everything that you do is self-preservation, preservation of your own species, and the proliferation of your species. At that point, it becomes something that you don't quite understand what you're doing. You're going to logically analyze things. You're going to claim that you're objective with it, with uh, why you're doing what you're doing. But the answer is, are you really being objective? Not really. Me? I'm in this alone. That's the way I look at it. I'm interested in, you know, shifting my planet and taking my planet and, and going and exploring myself, but I'm also interested in transforming my planet. Looking at it, at it all is like a big, huge computer program, and I'm the programmer. So, and that's actually the thing I've been asking myself is, from an automation perspective, what can I do? So, I've um, taken a few of the testing tools that I used for some of the stuff that uh, I used to do when I was a, a full-time programmer and everything. And I've started integrating some of these things within the Star Trek engine, um, or else outside of it. Um, the claim is, if you hack into Star Trek or any of these MMORPGs, that there's things that can actually detect it. And that's kind of the key, is I've got to make sure that it's not detectable. And... Uh, more or less mimicking the same keystrokes that I would be doing myself and everything. So everything I, I do for, from an automation perspective is exactly something I I would do anyways. Um, maybe just not quite as fast and everything. So that's actually one of the first things I did was I've got a uh, combat, and um, one of the problems that I've had with the combat uh, in commanding a spaceship and everything is uh, been able to manipulate shields uh, for uh, space-based combat and everything, and at the same time um, find a target, and at the same time 
um, fire, uh, do a fire. So there's a tab key which finds the target. There's the uh, space key which fires all weapons. Um, the shields are controlled with the arrow keys left, right, up, down. And um, there's also, oh, what is it? The ability to be able to... Um, I'll respond to uh, to dialogues that'll pop up, and those dialogues will pop up, and it'll ask you if you want to repair a satellite, um, which in combat you always want to do, or if you want to loot, which you always want to do, and uh, you always want to jump the gun on the loot, just because if your group gets it, and and uh, or if another group gets it, you don't get the chance to roll greed or need or something like that. So. What I've done is I've created a uh, lever leverage something called RoboTask, which will send keys. And uh, what it does is it uh, it just sends two keys right now on a, um, every 50 millisecond basis. So it sends an F key and then followed by a space bar. So what I do is it'll automatically... Um, repair any satellite that it comes by and also it'll uh, loot anything this the millisecond that uh, I mean within 50 milliseconds of that dialogue popping up so typically it's going to be faster than I can even respond or I mean I'll respond within my response rates about 23 to 30 milliseconds if I do see the dialogue right away most of the time I do but not all the time in this case it catches it all the time that's the beautiful thing about it and uh, it also fires all my weapons and uh, the firing mechanism has built in um, if you if you fire all the weapons it'll automatically target the the closest uh, enemy so it works out pretty slick because now I can actually focus on navigation and um, you know so I can maneuver my guy around and if I'm getting hammered on my right side for the shield um, I can actually rotate to the left or rotate to the right and actually make it so where they're hitting me on the front shields or the left shields and uh, I can actually go from there and um, also um, beef up the shields with the right up down and um, right left up and down arrows so that actually diverts energy to that uh, that shield so let's say I'm actually getting hit with the right shield over and over again, well, I could divert power to that shield to basically make it so where that shield amps up and everything, so where they can't penetrate the shields to actually do damage to me. So, it, it's working out pretty slick, and uh, that's actually what I'm thinking about is, what else can I automate? Now, just today I thought of another idea, but I'm just like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. And uh, it's basically the idea that uh, I can actually have it run this one mission over and over again. And I can actually get it to learn the keystrokes, or I can put the keystrokes in. I can do the mission one time myself, and then, you know, just replay it over and over again. And uh, I can actually skill up um, my guy real fast and accumulate a great deal of wealth pretty much overnight by having him run the same mission over and over and over again. So while it might take me 10 minutes to do um, one mission for this, I can have it repeat, you know, how many times during it throughout the night. 10 times, you know, times 60 or times 6 per hour, you know, times 8, you know, that's 48. And so the experience that I accumulate, which is about ha about a th probably about a, a fifth of a level, it, I mean, if I'm running this mission, was it 8 times 6, 48 times, you know, I, I can literally boost up my character 9 levels in one night, you know, and this is while I'm sleeping. 
Now, I probably won't do this with my primary character, but uh, I've got another character I'm building, which um, I actually might. And uh, the reason I might is going to be different. You know, the reason I might do it with this other character is um, I can stand to lose that character. And uh, for me... Um, the character's got nothing, it's a, nothing but Vulcans that are actually, um, in this character that I've, for the roster and everything. So I'm just like, well, Vulcans have a tendency not to think with emotion, and if I reinforce that by having, um, having this grind through an automated process that, uh, it has an unemotional me not behind it, or an emotional me behind it, um, running this, then that may not necessarily be a good thing. So if I can actually influence this character to be, you know, more Vulcan, then that actually works out pretty cool. So, anyways, when I get to the point of, uh, of doing this, um, I may do that. You know, so right now she's level 23, and it's Kenna's character. Um, I could probably race the thing to, you know, to level 65 within a period of, I'm not shitting you, within a period of, uh, of five days. So, but, uh, that's if I, I mean, I'm not really interested in power leveling like that, so, I used to do that kind of stuff and everything with a World of Warcraft, but I don't think I'm really that interested. I'm more interested in developing the character from a personality perspective and everything. It's just like, you know, does constant warfare, you know, fit with the Vulcan mentality? Well, it does in their lore um, from the early times, you know, for the first inception. I mean, Vulcans were known as being very warlike in their youth, but... Not later. That's actually what I'm thinking was, hmm, if I actually treat that character and I start going to war now, all the way up to level 65, that's probably not a wise idea. So, in any case, the whole process of automation, I'm trying to think of the ways I could automate commands that I do on a frequent basis and everything, and, um, and make it so where I can do these things and actually just be, you know, appear to be a highly skilled warrior and everything. You know, um, it's not cheating. You know, that's the cool thing. It's just basically leveraging toolkit, a toolkit that I have access to to send additional keystrokes, and my hands simply aren't fast enough to enter all the keys um, that I want to. And that's the whole thing. These are keys that I want to. My hands just don't have the capability to be able to move that fast in between all those different keys on the keyboard and everything. So, to some degree, this automation is an augmentation of my mind. In any case, I like that idea, and I like that concept. So, But uh, how to do it beyond what I'm already doing it with, and uh, making sure it appears natural, that's, that's going to be the tough part. But, um, yeah, I've done it with pretty much everything I've done. I mean, like I said, I got into EQ at EMU a while ago. Um, I think I might have mentioned that one. And uh, that actually helped me determine where things were on a map and when they popped up. You know, but uh, now I'm just trying to think of different ways to automate the tasks that I do. And also, um, I don't know, roster management and that kind of stuff and everything. But, uh I've got some digging into things to do. So, anyways, that's it for... Okay, uh, this, um, 
I'm going to go on for a little bit uh, off and on as I come across them and everything. And it's uh, going to be an analysis of um, the Star Trek universe and everything and why, relative to the Star Trek universe, they would actually uh, have um, the assignments saying what they do. So within Star Trek Online, you've got the capability to be able to do missions, and the missions, in a general sense, are a little bit more active with what you do. So you can go through, and they require you to go to places on occasion and to do certain things at, at these locations. And more often than not, it requires actually um, eliminating a threat or something of that kind of nature or something like that. So I quit doing missions a while ago, and for the most part I do battlefields just basically to accumulate experience and uh, to get the rewards that are associated with it. Um, but for the most part I'm just not interested in doing the missions because the missions are same old, same old shit over and over again. And it, uh, I'm just tired of, you know, tired for the most part of fighting unless there's, you know, some kind of reward for it. And, you know, fighting for the sake of getting better weapons and everything or better armor and everything isn't, uh, isn't really kind of, like, interesting to me at all. Now, the difference is um, uh, the battlefields, and uh, they call them, um, oh, what is it? I'm trying to, uh, trying to think. They call it what the word is that they use. Task Force Operations. Um, the Task Force Operations typically have some kind of reward with it, but in addition to that reward is typically something that uh, it's um, experience points um, and assignment points and also two other things or, or three other things that are really interesting to me, which is the energy credits. And uh, that helps me purchase um, better duty officers, better uh, complement my roster and everything. And um, the reputation marks, which I can actually gain reputation with certain factions and everything, and uh, also finally, um, and with that comes fleet assets, uh, fleet marks and that kind of stuff. And then there's also something called dilithium, and dilithium is kind of like the the more valuable commodity. And uh, through running these missions, you can, or through running the battlefield object ob objectives, you can quickly and easily accumulate um, energy and dilithium and um, and faction points too. The missions themselves, um, while the, the, the task fleet um, operations and everything are highly repetitive in nature, um, it's and not that much different away than the missions. The difference is the rewards are, com, com, are considerably more substantial with the task fleet operations. And not only that, but the battlefields are highly predictable and everything, and uh, it just makes it easy to get in. Um, I'll be jamming out to my music. I turn down the combat all, uh, information, so I'm not hearing any sounds. All I'm doing is I'm hearing Tchaikovsky or Beethoven or something like that. And in a lot of cases, I may be browsing on the other computer or something like that while I'm doing it. Now, um, this is just in a general sense the interface that I've gotten to the Star Trek world. Now, what something else that uh, that I'm actually working on um, actively is the fleet, um, the fleet operations. And with the fleet operations, there's a big demand for fleet marks and also for um, energy credits as well as the things that I could accumulate through energy credits, such as tactical and security officers, um, different officers altogether, and also the expertise. So that's actually the other, other side benefit of uh, battlefield operations is it gives me the opportunity to build up my fleet uh, pretty quickly. Um, well, I mean, as quickly as one person can do. It would certainly help having others uh, you know, sub helping me with this. But in any case, um, the... 
the net uh, net thing I want to talk about though is something called assignments. And uh, within the assignments, the assignments tend to vary by sector. So the Milky Way is broken down into four primary sectors. There's the Alpha, the Beta, the Gamma, and the Delta. Earth itself, um, when I first started the game, was actually resided within the Alpha sector. And uh, right now it's actually residing in the Beta sector. Um, why they changed the map that substantially and everything when it uh, originally existed in both the Alpha and the Beta sector and everything is beyond me. Um, I'm not one to ask questions or anything like that. It is what it is. That's the way I look at it. So, in any case, with Earth in the uh, in the beta sector, the soul system itself, um, every um, every so there's a, there's a an, a numeric system that basically has everything um, marked into what's the equivalent of kind of like a, uh, a rectangular. Um, area and these rectangular areas that are divided they extend from the center of the Milky Way galaxy and they go out to the outer fringes and everything in like a pie shape and that pie shape is uh, is more or less um, equivalent to um, one pie shape or one quarter of the Milky Way galaxy is equivalent to um, one uh, they refer to it as the it's not sector it's quadrant so that's hence the term quadrant and everything. And uh, the sectors are uh, sectored in such a way that uh, they're, they're different based on explored territory and that kind of stuff. So I, I saw a Starfleet um, astronomics chart and everything that actually came out separately from this based on the TV series and based on the writer's contribution and everything. And the sectors are actually overlapping. So um, while Star Trek Online depicts everything in being flat two-dimensional um, sectored space and everything, um, the reality is the sectors are um, on top of each other and what's depicted at least in this version of, of Star Trek of the Star Trek universe and everything is one flat quadrant uh, space so and I'm not saying flat as in it's totally flat the overhead map and everything is flat and but the uh, space that you're traveling in is, is three-dimensional space it just has a floor and a ceiling and um, if you're traveling in true space it's actually not going to be you know true um, however you can certainly quantify things at least on a galactic scale and everything and basically um, designate everything accordingly you know to that uh, it's not that that highly inaccurate a depiction of a single galaxy and everything but with that said um, every sector uh, so every uh, quadrant is divided into um, any number of different blocks and uh, for instance the alpha quadrant is is um, or the beta quadrant is has what six by seven different segments and everything um, and it's really important to keep in mind that this is explored territory that I have available to me um, this is not by any means or method the limitations of what uh, of what's out there um, this is just explored territory that's available to me so other people could potentially see bigger maps um, based on their perspective and everything other people may only see two uh, two sectors you know like I did when I originally started getting into the game and everything so with this with that said um, there's uh, 
all these different sectors. So, you know, for instance, and it's not uniform. So the that's the beta quadrant. The alpha quadrant has five by seven. Um, the delta quadrant has six by one. So it's only six sectors that have actually been uh, explored. Um, the gamma quadrant has five by four, you know, 20. So each one of these sectors, like I said, has a floor and a ceiling. And um, in addition to that, they also have um, they have different formations, stellar formations. Um, some cases they have uh, nebula, in other cases they have planets, um, they have star systems and everything. So there are free roaming planets, planets that actually don't have a star that it actually is around. Um, there's different other kinds of different formations. Um, there's, oh, what's the one that I saw the other day? That, uh, Oh, let's see if I can find it on this map. <clears throat> There's the Great Bloom, which is just a segment of space. It's a pretty, you know, really kind of pretty and everything. There's um, dormant um, flotillas, um, Romulan flotilla that's that's sitting off in space that uh, is really going nowhere fast. <coughs> There's um, the deep space uh, sta space stations. Uh, there's quite a few of those, and uh, one in particular is Deep Space Nine, which is uh, situated right next to this uh, wormhole that actually leads to the Gamma Quadrant. So it takes you directly from the Beta to the other side of the galaxy, the Gamma Quadrant, in literally the blink of an eye. Um, there's also other things, you know, such as the um, oh, Briar Patch. That was uh, one of the ones where you get into it and space itself is contorted in such a way that it actually distorts sensors and uh, all this other kind of stuff as well. Um, so there's a lot of different spatial uh, for the spatial formations, and I don't mean special formations. Uh, I mean spatial things that are actually occurring in space and everything that, in a lot of cases, um, you know, look really kind of cool. You know, I ran across one the other day that was over in uh, the, I think it was Denier sector. Um, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, what I'm going to get into is the sector space, and uh, the sector space itself actually includes. Um, any number of artificial features, and uh, in what, in particular, the the sector space includes the capability uh, to be able to send and receive from subspace transmissions that actually come that actually request you to do certain things um, via via something referred to as assignments. Now, these assignments, for the most part, are things that uh, that are actually transmitted transmitted on a on a band. Um, that's received by you and it, or by me, you know, and it comes up in my duty officer log. So in the current map, um, it actually refers to sector space. And uh, there's a sector update that occurs periodically and everything, and that sector update for me is every two hours. Um, and that, uh, that allows, uh, allows the differentiation, the change, the alteration, if you will, of, uh, of missions that are actually available within that particular sector of space. So it's, it's important to understand that each sector of space itself, you know, for instance, there's what, you know, like I said, six by something, six by seven, 42 altogether in the uh, beta quadrant, um, has the potential to actually have different assignments associated with it. And I've also noticed that uh, in particular areas um, that appear to be in blank, black space and everything, um, the current map, um, the information for assignments will change based on the location. So there's, uh, it's typically supposed to be confined to simply sector space, but I've noticed um, there's definitely 
definitely some inconsistencies with this, and and that inconsistencies uh, can be if um, you're warping from one into the galaxy and everything, and uh, if you just uh, show have the current map up, and uh, you watch it'll actually refresh as you enter sector boundaries. That's to be expected, um, and as you get close to certain planets and everything. Um, again, it might be expected that you're actually going to see changes in this, but uh, in some unexpected circumstances, for instance, in the lower half of the Alpha Quadrant here and there, periodically you're going to find pieces that, uh, you know, sometimes it could be Karema, sometimes it could be Cardassian and everything. Um, other times there doesn't seem to be any associated species uh, that, uh, that the assignments are updated for. But the assignments are unique um, for each one. So what this means, you know, what I'm trying to say is, you know, that uh, I've, I've actually, I'm trying to discover, trying to understand, or trying to, you know, f create and expand the, what I know is the Star Trek universe and everything, logically, analytically. Um, two things I'm doing is I've created a, uh, a character, you know, through Kenna and everything, um, through her, her um, presence and everything, um, that's basically, it's uh, entirely Vulcan. And uh, the question I'm constantly asking myself um, lately, the last couple days and everything, has been, um, is this something a Vulcan would do? So whenever I, I see an assignment and everything, and I'm, I'm making it a fact to level her up um, through non-combat missions and that kind of stuff, the only time she will go into combat is into a battlefield. And I, I tell myself, you know, that this is a simulation. It is not real. So I actively have this going through my head every time I enter it. This is a simulation, you know, and um, the, the the analogy is um, the Vulcans are responsible for creating something called the Kobayashi Maru, and uh, the Kobayashi Maru is supposed to be the un unwinnable game, the game that simply cannot be won. Well, it, it only makes sense that the Vulcans recognize their initial culture and where they come from and everything, and that's something depicted in Star Trek lore all over the place, and uh, with that um, with that said, they actually have a, a divisive bridge um, between their species and other species, and, and it's been traced back that there's actually, at the very least, two, maybe potentially even three or four different species and everything that, that literally um, came from the Vulcan species. And uh, that includes the uh, Cardassians, that also includes the Romulans, and that also includes the Endorans. So um, each one of these has distinct heritage markers that can actually trace at least, in the very least, some of their heritage, if not uh, potentially all of it, um, back to the Vulcan, uh, Vulcan mind and Vulcan mindset and everything. So with that said, there's a um, there's a mindset that I'm actually trying to you know to establish and everything. And the first part uh, is that uh, the Vulcan mindset is based on um, having to go to war, and uh, that war exists for the first 11 years and everything, or 11 levels uh, from my perspective of the of her character's existence and everything. Now she's supposed to personify at least the. Um, uh, the human um, way of looking at the Vulcan mindset and everything. So she's a human, um, but she's got nothing but a Vulcan crew and everything that supports her and everything. You know, so the analogy, the metaphor I'm trying to actually map over is basically um, she's not Vulcan, um, she is human. Um, the human's perception, an ideal, you know, of what, of how we see the Vulcans, and uh, that's that's the message I'm trying to send. And uh, the last two days, in particular, I've been basically making decisions for which um, which assignments to take. I've been making it a fact to get away from anything that involves 
fighting or warfare and everything, because, you know, that's when it comes down to it, the Vulcans are depicted as trying to be a peaceful society and having foregone um, some of the problems that, is, that were associated with war and everything as a result of a history of war that's in their distant past and everything. So with that, I've actually not taken on any missions and everything that, uh, that include warfare. And if I get a hint of a mission um, that actually could be potentially uh, non-warfare based and everything, and I enter that mission and discover that there's warfare involved, I immediately turn tail and I walk away from it altogether. And uh, I, I put kibosh, I stopped doing the mission altogether. So the, the goal and idea is to actually reinforce, reinforce the whole non-combat oriented um, perspective and everything that Vulcans have, for at least from as I've been depicted. Now, the other thing, too, is um, I'm also making an effect in the assignments to... Um, to pick assignments that uh, that a Vulcan would take. Now, the Vulcans themselves are um, scientifically based, and uh, they're highly, highly, highly focused on engineering and everything. Now, one of the interesting things I found, you know, was that uh, um, some of the missions um, require an entertainer, and uh, I... I've, you know, in all the stuff that I've actually seen, you know, and this is actually what made me think about reinforcing the whole star, uh, the whole Vulcan mindset and everything. In all the entertainment that I've seen and everything with, uh, with Vulcans, they entertain themselves through games, um, but they, they don't seem to ever become involved with formal entertainment, particularly in group settings and that kind of stuff. So, for instance, talent shows or, um, things that uh, could potentially be deemed, um, you know, more, you know, portraying of acting and uh, the whole concept of, um, you know, formal um, stage-based entertainment and that kind of stuff. So I had a difficult, um, well, I, I shouldn't say difficult, a impossible time trying to actually find a Vulcan entertainer. And I looked on the exchange, and that's how I how I get my um, Vulcans from the roster and everything. And I'll, I will shit you not, I could not find a single Vulcan entertainer, no matter the price. You know, I looked throughout the entire exchange, and it's like, wow, there's no Vulcan entertainers. You know, because I, I was trying to, what I was trying to do is just basically get an entertainer to compliment it. You know, to compliment it, and uh, if there is something I can actually leverage an entertainer for, you know, I can actually go through and, uh, you know, something. That, but this actually made me realize: wait a second, the Vulcan mindset and everything I've seen for the Vulcans—they don't have a wonderful sense of um, a sense of drama and theater. They don't have a whole idea and concept of this. I mean, they're highly involved in science and engineering concepts and that kind of stuff. Um, they might be a little bit involved with security and tactics and personal development and that kind of stuff, but when it comes down to um, performance art and, uh, and talent and that kind of stuff, they've definitely, um, I've never seen them in any of the material that I've seen, whether or not it's Star Trek Discovery or Star Trek The Next Generation or anything, um, I've yet to see any examples that the Vulcans were actually, you know, anything, but... Um, non-dramatic. I mean, and that just comes down to their nature. You know, they're not a an emotional species. You know, so that's actually what I started thinking. It's just like, wait a second. And this is this made me start thinking two days ago. It's just like, wait a second. I can actually take this and run with it. 
you know, uh, it reinforced the idea that I actually start creating the Vulcans and developing the mindset from a Vulcan perspective and everything for kind of reinforce it a little bit and take into consideration that uh, I should really, and this is actually what made me made me really think, you know, about making it so that the assignment selection has to be congruent with the Vulcan chain of thought. You know, the Vulcan way of thinking and everything. So thinking from their perspective, I mean, I've got one here. Confiscate contraband from crew. Well, I mean, this one's an obvious one, right? You know, the Vulcans pride themselves on the capability to be able to maintain a mind and control of their mind. So anybody that might be leveraging contraband, particularly of a of a pharmaceutical nature and everything, I mean that's more more usual the contraband that they're referring to here. Um, at that point, might be not something that's highly, highly, highly unwanted in the Vulcan society and everything, particularly aboard a ship and everything that's a, supposed to be kind of like a halfway militaristic vessel and everything. So that's one of the first ones that I plan on. So I include two officers for that one. Now, this has also gotten me to the point of also starting to question, you know, what some of these missions are, too, in ways I had never imagined before. You know, so f for instance, here's one for engineering. This would be a perfect candidate for the Vulcans. Unorthodox warp, warp core breach recovery simulations. Now, it's got three required, um, three required or four required um, people that go to this thing. One's a warp core engineer, the other one's a matter-antimatter specialist, and the other one's anybody in engineering. And then there's a fourth, somebody that's actually telekinetic in behavior. Now, this for me, you know, it, it just basically makes me understand further what warp is. You know, so what is telekinesis? Well, telekinesis is the ability to be able to manipulate matter at a distance with the mind and everything. You know, so to some degree, it, it requires the understanding that there's an interconnection between everything. Um, that's something that holistic societies and spiritualism preaches and discusses and metaphysical type stuff discusses all the time. And uh, it's not that hard to understand, you know, how this works. It's basically the, the mind has the capability to be able to... Um, transcend matter, and with this, you also have the capability, um, it's innate and dormant within basically everybody, in my opinion, to be able to remotely, um, without physical physically touching and everything, manipulate matter, and to manip manipulate the material world and everything. So, that's actually why somebody telekinetic would be important, you know, so if you've got something that's occurring, you have to have somebody that has control of the mind. Because a warp core failure is a fundamental failure in reality. And the telekinetic person is going to have a keener sense of what reality is because the interconnection of their mind to other, you know, to other aspects of reality and everything and will be able to reconstitute reality. So if you're actually trying to test for failure conditions and everything that actually constitutes the construction of reality itself, um, you want somebody on board that's actually going to have a firmer control of reality themselves and everything. You know, and the Vulcans are more of a product of the mind, but, you know, you have to have somebody that's in tune with the physical reality of uh, the world itself. And uh, the Vulcans, in a general sense, don't have that attunement. 
So, um, I've already had problems trying to find telekinetic people anyways. So, this just tells me, it's just like, okay, you know, and this is the one that I'm missing and everything. So, in any case, um, what I was trying to get to was just basically, um, as humans, um, I've got nothing but a human complement now, and I just have gone through the same process of uh, eliminating anybody that's non-human from my crew, and that meant get a, getting rid of some really, really good people and everything. And, uh, you know, the goal wasn't necessarily to be mean. You know, the goal is basically, you know, to go through and just basically say, anybody that identifies themselves as being human, I want on my team. You know, and anybody that identifies themselves as Vulcan, I'm going to put them on Kenneth's team. You know, and doing segmentation accordingly and everything. And, and the primary goal with it is to test out a couple theories. Number one can I actually influence the development of these separate galaxies individually and in a literal sense see a difference start to happen between the development of these worlds on two, two different machines? My theory is yes. Um, in addition to that, well, I see other differences. You know, for instance, other things that are available on the internet on one machine that's not available on the other. Um, that's one possibility. Um, other um, possibilities within the game itself is, um, will I see different assignments? Will I see the creation of new assignments, particularly for Vulcan society and Vulcan world and everything, and Vulcan mindset? And in contrast, um, you know, assignments that are created specifically for the humans and everything. You know, so my belief is that this is a quantum-based um, game. You know, it's a first of its kind, really. And uh, you know, in contrast to binary games, you know, where the programmers dictate everything and there's no expansion unless the developer says, um, this is different. You know, this is dynamic. It has a capability to grow, and and with that, the possibilities increase based on the on the player that's actually playing it. You know, now if I'm playing this thing from two entirely different perspectives on two entirely different machines, am I going to see this thing grow accordingly? I, su I suspect absolutely. You know, but um, I have yet to see any any true evidence of this yet. But that's just a suspicion as I stay on this track and maintain, you know, the differences, you know, and uh, reinforce those differences through the choices I make for each one. You know, um, I, I suspect that I'll, I'll start um, potentially seeing differences in the, uh, the evolution of each game, and each game world. Maybe. We'll see. So, for now, I'm just going to go ahead and stick with it and see what happens and everything. But uh, I just wanted to explain that and why I'm doing what I'm doing and everything, and, you know, to get others that, that participate in this. Uh, you know, that could certainly expand the possibilities that are added and potentially those possibilities are doled out like assignments to the respective races that can actually be responsible for maintaining it, so, or embracing that perspective. So, in any case, thanks for, I'll be back, I have no doubt, this, I love this conversation. Okay, it looks like I finally got a uh, card to go through on the uh, podcasting stuff, so I have more storage space and everything. Um, in any case, um, I'm going to turn 50 this year. Now, in the online community, Worlds of Warcraft and EverQuest, whenever somebody levels up, you shout DING really loud. And, uh, 
sometimes somebody, you know, you get a whole bunch of people say congratulations over and over again. In my real world, the real world equivalent of the ding is happy birthday. Now, a lot of people dread their birthday, and I think that dread comes from this um, innate belief that uh, a lot of us uh, have that uh, you're marching solidly towards your death and everything. But in the last couple of years, I've come to regard it differently. I don't believe that's the case anymore. I believe that uh, that slow march towards your death and everything is not inevitable. It's a choice that uh, I at one point did make, probably countless times. You know, sometimes I'm, I've actually seen it, too. You know, how many times do you die in a video game and disassociate yourself from the event and everything through a, this period of doing it over and over again? You know, you go and you pick up your body and you loot your corpse and retrieve your shit and everything. And a lot of this has had, had me coming to think about the formation of the mind. Now, I myself, you know, I'd looked at, um, looked at this whole idea and concept of consciousness and the pursuit of consciousness from uh, an internal perspective looking external for a lot of my life and everything. I, I read journals like Scientific American, Smithsonian, Popular Science. I even, you know, did a little research in research magazines and uh, periodicals and websites and that kind of stuff until I finally ended up you know, realizing that uh, there's, you know, not a whole lot of answers when it comes down to death and consciousness and what happens after and all that kind of stuff. And um, for me, I, I think a big part of the problem has been I, I didn't, um, I had looked for what I considered to be rational um, answers, uh, provable, um, things that are verifiable between people. The whole scientific method, right? You know, I observe something, and therefore somebody else could observe this something, and, you know, this is the rational conclusion or everything of what happens after death. And uh, I, I think that's the problem, is if you start, if you intend on taking that route of trying to understand consciousness and the mind and everything, um, you know, that, uh, that, that ultimately develops the idea of a collective, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, I'm saying it's that thinking process, in my opinion, and that adamant thinking process I've had my entire life, and this utter belief um, that everything that I experienced with my all my senses and everything was real. And, um... I mean, even if it was a, a drug-induced experience, it didn't make a difference. The fact is, I experienced it, you know. Um, if you took the same substance I did, in theory, you, you'd be able to experience that as well. And, and I've actually had trips with people that uh, have experienced the same fucking thing I have. So I know from a scientific basis that the things that um, I see... And the things that other people see, you know, when I'm having a hallucination and everything, are real, are absolutely real. 
Now, without trying to debate where that is and where it and uh, what specifically I'm uh, where it is and you know the 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 indicative indicative nature of it. Instead, it just basically makes me think about this whole idea of consciousness. Well, one thought comes to mind. You know, I I remember watching an episode of uh, Star Trek where their Q has uh, has effectively. Um, or a Bing has effectively appeared inside the planet and at seven different spots throughout space and time and in, in an impossible way and everything, all simultaneously. Well, I can't help but think that uh, if to some degree this world is a simulation, it's a projection of my mind, um, what I'm doing is I'm feeding myself the experiences um, are the external worlds, um, events that occur in that, um, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, which gives me the option, the opportunity to basically make any choice that I want to based on what's going on in the world around me and this massive feedback loop and everything. So at any given moment in time, and on a simultaneous basis, you know, taking the concept of the world is a projection and creation of my mind and my imagination, and therefore everything else is as well, you know, including you and including everything else. This isn't to demean your existence, and it's not to say that you're inferior or superior or anything other than, you know, you're just you. You know, um, eventually you may come to a day where you embrace the perspective of you have built and created your own individual world, and um, with that you have developed it to such a degree that you're interested in saying, hey, you know, I kind of like this. And uh, you run with it. And you don't just walk, but you run because you start realizing it's just like, wow. You know, uh, some things external to me are trying to cause problems, collapse this world as I know it. Um, from their perspective, they see a resource for energy in some cases, something called zero-point energy. And, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, they collapse alternative universes in order to create that in, in another universe. Um, in other cases, you know, they see possibility for, you know, the planet being something that they can leverage its, uh, its people as a uh, resource as well. In many cases, the minds of people act as processing power for, you know, super exorbitant computers and everything. There's a lot of different things that uh, can potentially become nasty and everything, you know, and that's actually, you know, what I've realized is I, I can't, um, I can't forego you know, the uh, the ideas and notions out there, and I, I can't pull punches anymore and basically say, look, I'm not waiting for God, you know, the way I look at it is, I am God, and it, it's not narcissism that speaks, it's just basically me saying, I like this world, um, I've, I've signed up, you know, on the bottom line and everything, because i I found some enjoyment with it, you know, in my own way. And I know those ways aren't necessarily acceptable to a lot of things that uh, would rather use it for other, other, other things.
you know, and my my enjoyment of sex, my enjoyment of drugs on occasion, um, the occasional indulgence I might have of alcohol, um, the, the adrenaline things that I enjoy, you know, um, other things such as experimentation and everything with computer-based systems and everything, and um, of course digital simulation and that kind of stuff, um, the potential for playing around with time and time travel, you know, manipulation of historical timelines and my own, you know, alternative of my own timeline. If you've got a timeline that's dependent on mine, you know, chances are, you know, I have awakened things from <laughs> very, very, very disparate parts of existence and everything because they're not happy, you know, with the manipulation of, uh, of things that could potentially alter and threaten their civilization, particularly if they depended on things always working with, in one way, in one form or fashion, everything for this country. You know, so if they be, if they became dependent on that, that's a little bit of a problem. And here's an example. I had um, uh, I went to Lifetime Fitness, and um, I'm just this a complete off the cuff analogy. Um, I went to Lifetime Fitness and everything, and one thing that they had written into the contract that was three pages long, and a lot of it was lawyer speak and everything, was that the only way to cancel was to physically go in and go into the office and everything, or go through this big, huge process um, from a, uh, a perspective of... <laughs> It requires me to actually send something that's been notarized and sent to them to their head office and everything. Well, I'm just like, you know, what I ended up doing was cutting off my feed. I said, hey, you know, I've got a credit card on this. You know, I had I had just moved from Scottsdale to um, to North Carolina, and uh, I myself there was no local facility or local gym equivalent and everything. And and don't get me wrong, I loved Lifetime Fitness. Absolutely loved the place. Um, hands down, it's the favorite gym that I've ever been to. But it was a big problem when I ended up moving at that point, and I ended up calling and saying, look, I'm, I've got to cancel. And it's just like, well, didn't you read the contract? And I'm just like, do you read all your contracts? And the guy's like, he was a sarcastic asshole. He was just like, well, of course I do. And I said, well, I'll be honest with you. No, I didn't. You know, uh, it was month by month. That's how it, That's what we agreed on. And uh, you may have put things down in the contract and everything that put a little bit more obligation on my plate. But the fact is, we agreed to a month by month verbal. That's the way I looked at it. Well, he begged to differ. He goes, your name's on the contract. And I said, we had a verbal agreement, and just because you put it in paper and you put something different than the verbal agreement in the paper doesn't doesn't justify, you know, what you're saying and everything. Well, this went back and forth and everything, and I, I asked to speak to the manager, and the manager simply validated the position and everything, and finally I ended up getting to the point where it's just like, look, I said, yeah, I, I have a credit card, you know, that's a... I, I use specifically for Lifetime, and by this point I had done this with a lot of my accounts and everything, where I specifically isolated um, accounts and uh, certain uh, bills that I had paying on a recurrent basis, um, I specifically isolated it to single credit cards and everything. And the reason I did that is just for this reason. If I had a service that I wasn't interested in maintaining or something like that, 
um, and I had problems with contract issues or something like that, which I had had in the past, this allowed me the way to basically sever that contract and everything and uh, basically walk away from it. And I said, well, you will not be able to maintain that contract and everything for, you know, um, on a month by month, which is what we agreed to and everything. And she's like, well, we will take it to collections. I said, you're kidding me. I'm calling you right now to tell you over the phone that I'm discontinuing, discontinuing this contract. So anyways, long story short, I did exactly as I said I did. I cut, I cut ties and I said, I'm not going to go through all that hassle in order to prove to them you know, in, in order to go through this process. I mean, I'd given them an account number. I had told them who I was. I gave them definitive proof over the phone and everything. And eventually it just got to the point where it's just like, this is ridiculous. So I turned around and I, you know, I said, okay, well, I am severing the contract. I am letting you know that. And you will no longer um, continue to receive payments and everything. And uh, I will um, cancel this credit card and everything. And they're just like, well, if you do that, you know, you're, we're going to take it to collections. So, in any case, long story short, a um, couple months goes by and I, I get the first bill. And it says, uh, we're, you know, sending this, uh, or you owe two months in, in arrears. And I'm just like going... Um, I'm not playing this game and everything. So I, I contacted them at this point once they threatened to put it on my credit report. And and I made it very clear. I said, if you put this on the credit report, I will absolutely seek counsel and I will litigate against you for causing problems with my credit report. Well, at this point, um, another month goes by. And uh, I end up, you know, getting this uh, nasty message from a collections company and everything. And um, I, I said, I made this clear, you know, to them. I said, you can do anything you want to, you know. I said, but uh, if I find anything on my credit report, I will sue you for compensative damages, you know, which, and I ended up quoting some figures out of them, which literally, you know, when it comes down to, um, there's, there's damages that you get when you have, you know, been in a discussion for valid, uh, contract and everything. And, um, when it comes down to it, there's the, the basic damages, which is two to five times, depending on what it is that you're looking at. And then there's something called compensatory damage and uh, compensatory damage is it's, it's kind of like, um, a liability or, you know, more or less saying, don't fucking do this again to not just this employee, but to any, or not, not just this person, but any person that you do business with. It's misrepresentation is what it comes down to. And, uh, just because the paperwork says something different, you know, the agreement is verbal. And when you're promising, when you're promising a, a contract that's month by month, and you include more than what's on that contract, what's on that verbal arrangement on the contract that makes it difficult for that month to month to be discontinued. Well, that's just basically fal false in, uh, falsifying advertisement. And uh, at that point, um, so I ended up, uh, you know, once I ended up getting that, and I said, um, I said, if I do see anything on my uh, on my uh, credit report, um, I will pursue legal uh, legal rep representation. Well, within two weeks, I literally I had a, had a mark on my uh, on my credit report. So I ended up contacting a lawyer, and um, lawyer ended up saying, "Okay, I've got all this handled and everything." Um, 
He goes, uh, are you interested in taking this to court? And I said, I told him I was pretty clear about it. I'm interested in making an example of this person. You know, I don't want this to happen again and everything. So this this went and uh, and he ended up uh, saying, okay, he goes, I'll see what I can do. Well, all he ended up doing was ended up uh, calling the collections company. The collections company immediately backed down. They sent it back to Lifetime, and at that point, they ended up uh, stopping uh, taking it off my credit altogether. Now, the cool thing is, is with it, this was um, actually, you know, the lawyer represented me and everything without uh, any charge. All he did was call the collections company, and he was a friend anyway, so I'm just like, you know, I was willing to pay the guy to do what he did, but uh, ultimately, he ended up... Um, taking care of business and everything just with a simple phone call explaining who he was and I'm bar certified lawyer and all this other kind of stuff and sometimes that's all it takes but anyways where I was going with this was um you know when it comes down to it you know the processes and procedures that actually are responsible for creating this thing called reality and everything um I I do believe that uh, there's a little bit of a feedback system that goes on <laughs> And with this, um, simultaneously, um, I I am, you know, um, I look at it like a, there's a potential that I can exist outside of me, but I would never see myself existing outside of me. I would see myself as a slight variation. Now, I had evidence of this um, about seven years ago, where I was a... Uh, I was going through some pretty, uh, you know, nasty withdrawals and everything, but um, I, I kept, you know, this is the thing. If I call it the influence of an external substance and everything, um, then that's going to give it a, um, you know, give the power to that substance for influencing my reality and everything. And ultimately, that substance acted as a trigger but my mind is what was responsible for what I was saying. You know, do you see, do you understand the importance in this? You know, so for me, when I realized what I was going through and everything, um, that hallucination wasn't a result of stimulation, a direct result of the stimulation of my mind through an external subs substance. It's the willing result of that external stim stimulation that actually showed me something and I was wanting to see it. What I saw, what I experienced was willful. Now it scared the shit out of me, don't get me wrong, but because I was willful with what I wanted to see, because of the, ex the self-experimentation, the desire to understand reality and understand my own mind and consciousness altogether and, and to quit looking for external definitions of it and instead just basically say, wait a second, it's this dude right here you know, that I'm interested in understanding. Because of that, I ended up starting to understand some things that um, was just simply straight out of science fiction. So, me and my mom, we were walking through, um, through a place, um, a downtown area, where they had some kind of uh, the roads blocked off and everything in Portland. It was about seven years ago. And um, I remember, uh, remember seeing... 
a flash of light behind and to the left of me. And when I turned around, this area that was totally empty all of a sudden ended up containing um, no people. That, or I'm sorry, there was a, a, a lady and a, and a cute young woman, and uh, her two children and everything were in tow. Now, for me, um, it was weird, you know, because I saw the flash, and she wasn't there one moment, and all of a sudden she was there the next moment. And uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of things, things I... I, this is at a point where I started, I stopped dismissing these things, you know, and I started logging everything. I started saying, okay, what does this mean? You know, how does my mind function, you know, at different levels and everything, you know, from a, a multi-threaded perspective and everything, you know, is my mind multi-threaded? And what that means is, um, on a Windows operating system, your mind has a capa, or the, uh, your mind... That's the analogy. Um, you have the capability to be able to have different windows up at the same time. And uh, it could be Notepad. It could be um, you know, any number of things. Winamp, um, Pandora in a browser. Uh, you could have all these different applications up. Well, typically, this is done in a binary way. And it's, it's done through um, first-in, first-out type basis and everything in what's known as preemptive programming. So more or less the the kernel itself runs on a loop and that loop in a first in first out basis and everything will consecutively access everything and uh, will make it so where um, Notepad has its processing time, and then after that, the browser will have its processing time, and then after that, uh, a video game has its processing time. Now, you don't see this preemption, you know, you don't see um, the time slices that are given to each little piece uh, at all, you know, from you're not supposed to see this, but because of bad programming, you might see a browser that'll halt the entire system, or you might see um, different things happen as as a result of this, and uh, this is what's known as um, preemptive programming. So where it's it appears to be a multi-threaded um, program, where each thread on each process works, but uh, and each one is going at the same speed, running the processes that it does, and everything. Um, and then from there, you know, it's it's responsible for tasking, you know, for accepting your, you know, your inner key when you're entering a Word document, um, and maybe a task switch from that to something in the background, and at this point you're messing around with, um, I don't know, maybe your, your media player, or Pinnacle Studio, or Adobe Photoshop. So what's happening is the, the keyboard's capturing all this input. Um, it's taking this information and it's processing it, um, and that's actually what the pro the computer is responsible for. It takes information in on kind of like a sequential basis, but it does does it so rapidly that at that point it's actually turning around and then processing this information, displaying things on the screen in a very rapid way. So it appears, for all intents and purposes, it appears as if it's um, it's all moving uh, at the same. Um, I mean, each one is individual. That's that's how it appears if you're to observe it. 
but uh, if you actually dive underneath the covers, it's that's not the case. You know, what happens is it's a, it's a first in, first out basis. So whatever process was first um, or highest priority, it, it gets execution time. You know, so it's, and to, to give you an analogy, let's say you're playing um, the game Grand Theft Auto. And, uh, game I've truly loved just because it does such a great job in showing the world as I know it, with the exception of the violence. But uh, the world with, you know, some of the alive character does an exceptional job with that. And um, one of the interesting things to it is that uh, if you actually pay attention to how everything works within it, um, the pedestrians themselves everything you know so let's say you're observing this and if you're to slow the processes down and slow the machine down to a crawl what you're going to see is I mean I'm talking an absolute crawl you'll you're going to see one pedestrian you know I mean you'll see all pedestrians move at the same time which will sh will indicate that uh, it'll you you might see something like all the pedestrians move at the same time. Um, what that's doing is demonstrating that maybe pedestrians and pedestrian drawing is in one loop, um, and then you see all the cars move on the next iteration. So let's say it's just you put this on a super slow computer, and at this point you start paying attention, you know, so you can see what's in the loop. Well, okay, so you see all the pedestrians move, and then right after that, boom, you see another tick, and you see the birds fly, and then boom, after that you see the cars move, you know, um, and that's actually, for me, it's just like, it's kind of cool because you can actually see that, you know, in the real world, and how it functions in a very, very similar fashion. And that's actually what I realized that day. I was effectively altering the speed of my processor, and I was slowing myself down relative to the world around me. And what I was saying was a direct result of that. So actually, I can't, I can't tell you which one I was doing. Was I accelerating the world around me? Or was I accelerating my, my own mind? I haven't been able to figure out temporally what I was doing. All I know is I was temporally adjusting the way my mind worked relative to the rest of the world around me. Now, you see something like this, I did at least when I was smoking weed back in high school and everything, where I remember one time where it felt like I was going fucking fast, you know, I was driving with my uh, friends down the street and everything. And uh, I was 16 years old, I was by, driving this big huge boat in LTD, and um, I had noticed that as we're driving, um, I mean, we're hired in the fucking kites and everything, we're, we're having the munchies, so we're driving over Circle K on a weekend, and uh, as, uh, as we're driving, my buddy looks at me, he goes, dude, you're driving too fast, police are going to catch you. I'm just like, and the other guy looks at me and goes, yeah, slow down. So I'm looking, I'm going, uh, okay. And all of a sudden I look down at the speedometer, and I'm going 13 miles an hour down a 45 mile an hour road. And I'm just like, holy fucking shit. I started cracking up, and they're just like, what's so funny? I said, I'm going 13 miles an hour 
and they started cracking up too and we we probably laughed for five minutes after that what felt like a half an hour but it was funny you know and this is the whole funny thing about temporal relativity you know so you watch a clock and that clock goes really really slow you know how many different schoolhouses have you been in where it feels like those last five minutes just go by so slow well, the world will try to tell you, you know, that this is a phenomenon and it's, uh, it's an invalid observation, it might go so far to say. But it's not. You know, time does have a tendency to be relative. You know, and the experiences that each one of us has, has a tendency to be relative as well. And with that, what that means is, you know, my experience is going to be different than anybody else's and everything, and and which really comes down to understanding the hardwired nature of reality and everything. You know, the first in, first out, you know, type basis and everything. Well, what if I am the primary thread, you know, of a computer, of a massive computer system and everything? You know, and, and what if everything is... Everything I see around me is a product of the iterative nature of reality. Now, here's the trippy thing that I had to start understanding about this all, particularly when it came down to temporal-related perspective and everything. Let's say time and, and the motion of time is absolutely positive, positively relative to me. Now, let's say I slow down time. And let's say I add more variety into my world and everything. Let's say I keep on expanding that and make it so where instead of just having um, a block that I live on and that's all I'm aware of, instead I expand that, you know, to maybe a city. Let's say I, I expand that, you know, so in, in a Grand Theft Auto game type of way, my mind running this simulation called the world around me and everything, let's say temporally, you know, um, because this isn't isolated to a single computer or something like that, I slow my mind down and for every, you know, second, you know, um, if you if you actually for some reason was external watching all this and everything, for every second um, that passes by relative to you, I may appear like I'm doing absolutely nothing. You know, and um, and this is actually the interesting you know thing about relativity. Let's say an hour goes by, I may appear like I'm not moving at all, and my entire planet may appear frozen. Let's say I, I, you know, you're watching me over a period of a year, ten years, a hundred years. Relative to you, it still may appear frozen. Well, that's the beauty about existence and everything, at least from my perspective. I can slow down time, and I can keep on slowing down time relative to the rest, or to all of existence that I'm not aware of, and I can keep on slowing it down to expand my world, to expand the possibilities, to grow my universe. 
you know so in in what i'm saying is my mind has the capability to not just draw you know the uh the buildings around me you know but it also has a capability to be able to animate the the characters that exist within it you know to develop the minds within each one of these as well you know to try out different things as well develop personalities individual personalities have planes flying overhead and <laughs> drawing those as well. You know, creating effects and actually measuring things like gravity and, you know, um, just determining to, is, uh, is somebody, are things within my world, you know, following the rules that I have set, and if not, doing my best to basically make sure I don't hurt them. You know, and doing my best to teach them, you know, what I know, and that way, if one of these days they actually want to return to say hi to me, or thank you, or <laughs> something else, the door's always open. That's the way I look at it. I mean, the way I look at my existence is, I'm, I'm here, and I'm here, and I'm an eternal being, and with that eternal nature, that means, in a general sense, um, Everything that I see, that I've developed and everything, has been for this single iteration of this planet in its current, current state and everything. Now, the memories that I have, the things that I do, I do not repeat. And that's that's a, just a personal rule that I have. I will expand my existence. I will expand the possibilities. Um, I will live on another planet and and live as an, lives a, lives a, as a being that might regard be regarded as an alien, you know, to the species and everything. I'll play the good guy and I'll play the bad guy. I'll make it a fact not to harm myself, at least in the form that I'm aware of that I'm actually in the pres in in the presence as God. You know, and that's all so I can actually continue the expansion, basically the respect of individual free will and individual choice and everything, up to and including my own. You know, but here's the cool thing. You know, let's say um, you're observing me from the outside. Now, let's say we are walking in lockstep when it comes down to it. So for every second that you watch of my time, you know, I'm watching a second of your time. Or for every second of my time you're watching, a, a second goes by in your world. So let's just say these are synonymous and everything. Um, but let's just say that uh, I decide to expand my world. Well, slowly but surely, let's say 10 seconds goes by for, my, for your world. A second may appear to go by in your world. And then it keeps on going like that. Maybe a hundred seconds goes by, and only a second goes by for me in my world. And then maybe it gets even worse. And then at that point, you might start assuming that there's some problems with my world. And there could potentially be. <coughs> I may want you around. So, really what it comes down to is that woman that I saw, it's a reflection. You know, let's just say every conscious mind, you know, um, i.e. soul, is a blank slate from a mind perspective. Now, let's say every soul in itself 
contains both the spirit, spiritual element of each being, and that's in combination with the mind. So both of them kind of go hand in hand. That spirit can run free of its form. You know, um, it, it can actually exist um, as a conscious being outside of the body. And, and keep in mind, I'm not theorizing this, I'm defining it. And with this, it has a DNA in a very similar fashion to the physical body. They're not always the same, though. Sometimes there's a convergence of the DNA of the soul and the mind, or in the body, that comes together. And that's actually what happened to form me. You, know, you have a disembodied mind, you know, and to some degree, you know, it's like the two fighting, uh, they don't always fight. You know, they struggle for dominance, though, to some degree. Until finally they come to an agreement. And we, I, say this is the reality I like. Now time becomes the thing that we manage. The outside things that we see, for the most part, are a manifestation of the mind potentially exploding all over the place with possibilities. Hey, let's think, you know, every thought, for instance, creates a thread that actually manifests something in the real world that actually tests out that idea and that theory. And this just keeps on going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny. It's kind of funny, I saw when I was over in Hong Kong, um, off the shore of, uh, um, of there's Paradise Island is the name of the island, and uh, there's something called Noah's Ark over there. And when I saw it, I saw these animals, you know, that are being led off of, uh, off of this thing. The Ark is pretty massive and everything. But what was going through my head was, what if this is the real Ark? Now, I'm seeing it, you know, in a way that makes sense to me, you know, temporally. You know, until my mind can figure out, you know, what I'm seeing and understand it and, and, you know, not come to this conclusion that that's just been built, you know, by humans with, with hands and everything as I'd have with everything else that I've seen that appears artificial. But instead, let's just say it, it, it appeared there. You know, it's there, you know, and the backstory is given that it's created by human hands. But let's say it's actually the real thing. And let's just say this comes from a time, you know, where that story in the Bible and everything um, has formed a separate thread of reality that moves at a different pace and everything temporally in contrast to me. So what I see is I see what looks like, you know, these <laughs> giraffes and lions and all this kind of stuff that appears like it's made out of stone you know, or wood or stuff like that. You know, just because of the nature of time, this is how my mind identifies these things when they're moving at such a slow rate of time. 
you know, the same thing holds true for um, Las Vegas. They have uh, they have these statues that just appeared out of the blue and everything, you know. And uh, they they first were mysterious, you know, and uh, they appeared all over Henderson, Green Valley, and um, they're just these bronze statues and everything. Well. It was a mystery, complete mystery, yeah. And then later it came out, um, a, a story explaining them came out, but I just didn't find that story copacetic. I, it, it just didn't jive for me. Well, what if a different story for it is? These are actually real people. They're just moving at a different rate of time. And because of that different rate of time, the way their atoms form and the way things actually appear, you know, to somebody that's experiencing time at a significantly slower rate or faster rate, you know, is going to see these things, is going to be, you know, see these things in a little bit more solid a form. And yes, sure, you could potentially <coughs> destroy that statue. But the funny thing about, about reality is its tendency for resilience. And should you actually go take that statue out? Go back a month later. My bet is you're going to find it there. Or within a couple years, it'll be right back there. That's the funny thing. Reality has this weird habit of rebuilding itself. <laughs> Adaptation and change and alteration doesn't always happen. Twin Towers, that's, uh, that's one example that it does, but not all the time. The first, uh, the first explanations that were up were saying, hey, change this. Put the towers back and everything. But those people like me that just, uh, you know, thought, hey, this is just, uh, it's a bastion, you know, to anybody that's wanting to come to our country to make money and everything. And that's not what this country is about to me. Sure, I make money here, but it's... You know, to actually advertise it to every other country out here, hey, we are Wall Street. Come here. Nah. And that's what those towers stood for, and I'm glad they're gone. In any case, temporal relativity and everything. I think the more that you slow down time or speed it up and everything, you will see things that are a little bit different. And that's the whole thing. You know, collectively, we're taught that time is actually moving at a collective, in a collective way and everything. We're surrounded by clocks and timepieces and all this other stuff and everything to reinforce the collective understanding of what time is. And there's an attempt to actually maintain a collective sense that it moves in unity. But that's not the case. Not always the case. Particularly if reality becomes something that you don't want it to be. Or, conversely, if you find a story that you want to live. Free will and choice, in my opinion, will take you places. And it's kind of like that uh, be careful what you wish for, right? 
I don't know half the shit what I'm doing right now. I know that I'm programming in the three-dimensional world. And um, three-dimensional programming, you know, is not going through a filter, a.k.a. a two-dimensional uh, program, a two-dimensional screen to put it back into a three-dimensional world. That's still two-dimensional programming. Programming in a three-dimensional world and the thought processes involved with three-dimensional um, working as a programmer and everything are all altogether 100% different than understanding it through a screen. It's a lot more obtuse, abstract, and you know the flexibility that I had in a binary way is completely different than in a first-person way. And that's what all this is a part of, is just understanding that you know, while you program, things are certainly isolated to a certain degree and everything within the programming environment and everything in a two-dimensional world. I still see some of those rules, you know, and still see some isolation and everything and some, you know, in, inflexibility. And that's actually what I'm trying to understand right now a lot by these conversations and everything is, are, is that flexibility because of me and because of the limitations that I've uh, imposed on myself? Or conversely, is there something external to me, and are those are the limitations external to me? And that's something I'm not fully 100% sure of yet. I'll get there. But in any case, temporal relativity—it's such an interesting topic to me. And I think that's actually what uh, what drugs kind of do to some degree: switches channels you know, for the mind. In a lot of cases, it adjusts the relativity, the uh, acceleration, deceleration of time. I mean, they call it a stimulant, you know, for a reason. They call them depressants for a reason. Depressant slows down the rate of time, and that's why you get the effects that, that you do. But your body has this tendency to stay in the relative moment and everything. You know, it's like a rubber band. It has a tendency to snap temporally into what's considered the best place for it to be and everything. But sometimes that best place for it to be is inflexible and also tends to sap away free will, at least by my experience. And uh, that's actually what I'm in the process of of understanding. Does it do as I'm perceiving it to do? Or is that just a um, misinterpretation of what I'm saying? I don't know yet. Focus on what I want, though. You know, that's the most important. So, in any case. Oh, something else I want to mention, too, was um, the concept of quantum computing versus um, binary computing, and also another concept uh, known as analog computing. Now, back in 1950s, 1960s, um, the United States ended up uh, doing a series of experiments and everything, and uh, they built uh, analog computers and everything, and it's computer-based solely on matter, things that, uh, that had no internal interfaces whatsoever or anything like that. And there was a reason for that. It's my belief that, uh, to some degree, the whole concept and idea of um, digital computers has 
has actually been our past history and everything, and it's been something that they attempted to steer clear of and everything with the creation of uh, physical matter and uh, created computers. Well, it's kind of brilliant, if you ask me. Um, so that's actually what's known as an analog computer. Um, something that is insistent on using analog information, analog um, interpretation, analog material in order to actually create it. And all the computing is done um, external. So you don't have screens, you don't have all this other stuff and everything. Everything is done through analog equipment and everything. So that's why card punches were so keen. Um, it's actually an advancement from the digitally based world and everything. Now, in my opinion, um, over a very long history and everything, this, our country, our world has actually oscillated uh, between these, um, you know, the analog and the digital, has done this for an extremely long time. And uh, up until now, you know, and n now because of my own personal waking and everything, you know, to some degree, I am in part responsible for this oscillation and everything. So this segues into something known as quantum computing. Now, quantum computing is kind of like an abstract form of both. Um, it's the ability to, for something to be able to uh, analyze information and everything, um, both materially and also um, digitally. So, you know, digital analogs are thought to be opposites and everything. And uh, for the most part in this world, they are. You know, one is in the mind, the other one is um, is not. And uh, But the, the two coexist, at least they do in my world and everything. And uh, you've got something known as a holographic reality, which is something I see, you know, through this, uh, through this computer. Now, here's the thing. I'm actually developing right now in a literal sense the world's first quantum computer and I'm saying you know what it comes down to is um, thought is what is responsible for creating reality and the belief that your thought has the, those kind of capabilities and everything is actually what's directly responsible for creating these things so I'm playing with the simulation of Star Trek and everything online and uh, I'm Making it, I mean, it's, it's, it is my belief that this is not a binary program, not a digital program, but it's a quantum program. Um, it is a program that is actually created in energy. So, what that means is, in, in a way that's similar to how trees grow, um, how the planet forms, how, um, how, um, <laughs> any number of different things in, in a similar fashion to how organic things come into existence that's the same place that this is actually residing it's residing within the core of the quantum universe itself so it's basically below the subatomic layer below the subatomic layer below the digital layer below you know, it's it's where energy. Um, it's right below where where physics is made, and in a literal sense, you know, I've been working with it my entire life, not understanding what I was working with. Now, here's why I'm saying it's below physics. I have the capability within 
several different environments and everything to develop new rules that actually govern time and space and everything. In a literal sense, I have the capability to be able to create something inside this digital simulation and everything that has time move at a different rate of time, uh, speed. Um, that has different rate of speed or um, different um, methods and everything for drawing. You know, for the physical, uh, the three-dimensional objects that actually appear inside the simulation and everything. However, because it's a binary interpretation that actually goes through this process of interacting with the quote-unquote quantum world and everything, it's providing me limited capabilities and limited ability to be able to influence the quantum world in ways that I'm trying to achieve and everything. Well, this is all blown off, you know, when it comes down to the simulation, because this simulation is the first time that I've actually seen some of this behavior in it. And as I started thinking about it, it's just like, no, this is very much, you know, working at the quantum layer. You know, other things that I'm working with do. And what that means is specifically, let's say you've got the capability to be able to um, create for the first time, you know, a brand new um, genetic strand of, uh, of, a, of an animal. But let's say you can do this through the physical manipulation of genetic code directly through a computer and somewhere in the world that little beastie comes to life, springs to life. Now let's take it a little bit of a step further. Let's say you have the capability to fundamentally alter the way somebody thinks. Fundamentally. Create a simulation of them and at that point just establish different behavioral patterns and everything you don't need to contact them in order to create this influence. All you have to do is act with a repetitive pattern of somebody of their own name, and at that point that creates the influence indirectly through energy. It's a ripple effect. So let's take another step further. Let's say I actually am interested in creating alternative planets. I take a simulation like this, and all I do is I observe. I go to the planet that I want to, you know, particularly, I mean, at this point, sure, I'm confined, you know, artificially to the Star Trek universe and everything, but I pay attention to two primary planets and everything. One is a 2409 version of, uh, of Earth, at least at Starfleet, and the other one's a, uh, a planet Vulcan. Now, yeah, what if, by simple observation of everything, the translation occurs at the quantum level, which actually causes the expansion of these, and for me, you know, at least locally, it causes the a forward momentum to actually create that version of 2409. bridging it from the time period that we have right now to that point. I, I create the anchor points, is what it comes down to. You know, in reality, boom, set the anchor out there. You know, for Earth, this is what Earth is going to look like in 2409. You know, um, at least in part. You know, I mean, the lower resolution models and that kind of stuff definitely aren't going to be acceptable, but this is setting the time zero to actually go in this direction. 
you know, and similarly, Vulcan, you know, hey, it's stones throw away from uh, from Earth and everything. So planet Vulcan will be, you know, something's also in part discovered through digital mechanisms and everything um, that actually interacts with the quantum universe that actually expands that planet and that planet's existence and everything not far from Earth. So, in any case, um, not all simulations are created equal. Some exist solely, I feel, within the binary universe. Um, but uh, the universe is far more than a binary mechanism. You know, the whole concept of the matrix isn't, uh, isn't there to trap you. It's there to teach you. You can become whatever you want to. You just have to make a choice. If you don't want to become anything, that's a choice too. So, if you don't want to choose, there's other people that will gladly take the reins for you. Put your mind on hold if you want to. I've never said, well, in any case, thought I'd mention that.